Blog Talk Radio. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave and ancient land to me. Unfortunately, the lyrics of that song are written incorrectly. It says, when uh, you are by my side, um, that's not the way it works. Um, We individually, no matter our race, uh, have to walk away from religion and from being overtly political and then accept the terms and conditions of the covenant, which there are five, and benefit by attending the Moed Mikre, of which there are seven. And when we do that, we uh, find that we are um, walking alongside Yahweh. So we come to him. He does not come to us. He can send a, um, um, a message out to us to invite us to meet with him even before we know him, so long as we have first walked away from, disassociated completely from, religion Mm -hmm. and politics. Once we have done those things, he can reach out to us, and then at that point, it is our responsibility. But the first condition of the covenant has us to first walk away from our country. Uh, from, in the case of Abram, it was Babylon, the confounding, confusing uh, confusion of intermixing religion and politics together, which Israel is famous for. And the second condition is, is walk to Yahweh and become perfect. It doesn't say uh, summon Yahweh to you. Walk to <laughs> Yahweh and become perfect. The lyrics of the song are wrong. And it's important because right now Yahweh is not by your side. And that's the reason why the sky is falling. And it is literally falling. On October 7th, um, I was in the midst of translating a passage from Zephaniah uh, where Yahweh 
explains his intent for Gaza. And rest assured, Gaza has a solution that will actually work, unlike Israel's. And that is the complete eradication of Muslims. Unfortunately, that is what's necessary for Israel to live in peace. Um, Even if it were possible, and it's not, to hunt down and kill every Hamas member, which wouldn't bother me in the least, would be a good start. Even if that were possible, and it's not, then you still have to deal with the fact that it wouldn't make one iota's worth of difference. Wouldn't even be a benefit of one month of peace. Getting rid of Al-Qaeda simply led to the Islamic State. Getting rid of the Islamic State led to Hamas and Hezbollah. Should uh, we, the world, eliminate Hamas and Hezbollah, which is not going to happen, it will just be another Islamic club. It could be Islamic Jihad. could be the PLO. Islam is devoted to terror. Allah wants Muslims to kill every Jew. They are convinced that they are going to rule the world. It's hilarious, actually, though, because all Muslims are slaves. Islam means to submit. Uh, A Muslim is one who submits. Allah is very clear. There's only two people, those who will be resurrected and he will torture forever because they rejected his claims that he is God, and those who are his slaves, who bow to him, who prostrate themselves to him, who surrender to them, who have no free will of their own, have no right to do anything. And that's what the world is up against. Before we we proceed with this rewrite of Prophet of Doom, now goddamn religion, and we're going to turn to uh, the second, um, actually it's the, yeah, it's the second volume, uh, the fourth chapter with whom am I speaking, because it is riveting in terms of what it reveals about Muhammad. And well, at this point, I can't say Allah, because the Quran opens with an unnamed Lord, and then it progresses from there to a god uh, that was favored by the Yemenites, uh, Arab conversion, uh, uh, conversions to Judaism. His name was Ar-Rahman. And of course, the first 20 or 30 Quran surahs are either to the Lord or to Ar-Rahman. Allah doesn't become the god of the Quran until uh, Muhammad is run out of what is Petra in shame during the satanic verses. Um, But before we get there, there was a very disquieting article that was published late today by the New York Times, up around the world. And if true, and I I don't think there's any question that it's true, uh, because there's way too much substance to the story. If true, then Israel was complicit in her own demise. And uh, this, is, uh, this is stunningly tragic. The article begins, uh, uh, this one is the Jerusalem Post reporting what the New York Times published. It says a bombshell report by the New York Times claims that Israeli officials, 
had a detailed uh, document outlining point by point of the plans for the Hamas attack on Israel. It's a 40-page document. But they dismissed the plan because they thought that the aspirations were beyond Hamas's capabilities. This document goes on to, uh, and it's called, the, the Israelis called the document the Jericho Wall. That's not what the, uh, uh, the Muslims uh, called it. The Muslims, of course, cited the Quran as a line from the, uh, the fourth surah. Uh, it, uh, it says, surprise them through the gate and you certainly will prevail. This document says specifically that drones would be used to attack Israel's surveillance system along the, uh, the Gaza fence. It then says that uh, Hamas militants would enter Israel on paragliders and on motorcycles under the cover of a barrage of rockets. List the locations of the IDF forces in the area and their, uh, the size of that force, saying that the first target would be to overwhelm the military base in Raim, which is the site of the uh, party, uh, that the 350 Jewish youngsters lost their lives. That would be their first target, and it was. It talked about where they would go, what they would do when they got there, and it played out exactly as this document says. Israel even had in its possession aerial footage of Hamas doing exercises that were consistent with this attack. Mm. And you have to add this to the the, uh, Washington Post story that came out the day or two, maybe a week, but within two or three days of of, uh, seven days maximum of the attack where the Washington Post learned that um, the government of of Iran at the highest civilian level and Nasrallah and the leaders of Hamas met multiple times in the months leading up to this attack, making sure that it was coordinated and properly planned and equipped. And when Israel was asked about it, it says, no, we don't know anything about that. Uh, That report's not true. Well, it subsequently came out, and there's video of it, that in the months prior to the attack, that Iran actually brought 500 Gazian Hamas militants into Iran, gave them really fancy uniforms, brand new weapons, and trained them such that they could be effective murderers. And Israel, with its vaulted intelligence, knew nothing of it. And then you combine that with the fact that two of the three battalions of IDF soldiers watching the wall were AWOL because they were called to protect settlers 
from right-wing parties that decided they wanted to have a Sukkot celebration in the West Bank at Tura, just so they could antagonize Muslims. And then it took Israel between 8 and 10 hours to respond. There were local police units that performed heroically. Many of them were killed. Many of them were kidnapped. There were uh, reservists who uh, came to the fray. But in terms of the IDF engaging and saving these people, they were 8 to 10 hours late. They had a fleet of Apache gunships that could have stopped Hamas from bringing any captives back into Gaza, and they didn't get a single one of them airborne. There's so much that is rotten, including the fact that it's now known that there were six occasions where the Mashad and Shenbet came to Bibi Netanyahu and said, we have a viable plan to kill Sinwar, the head of Hamas. who, by the way, was a released prisoner on a prisoner swap. Six plants. Netanyahu said no. You put all of this together, and it's either you have the most inept government in a civilized country, a government that cannot snooze because the cost is the, is the entire nation. So either it's, it's completely and utterly incompetent, which in a case of Israel, where incompetence is annihilation, mm-hmm. or it's complicit mm-hmm. and wanted this war. Wow. I don't know which one it is, but I can tell you that uh, Israel entered a no-win situation. You know, they're back at war with with Gaza, which is much better than trading hostages. Israel, uh, I know, listen, I I know there's wonderful pictures of old ladies uh, being released and and children being released and and, uh, some mothers being released. And and I know that is exceedingly heartwarming and wonderful for that... um, hundred or so uh, families, and and I understand that. Sure. And while you have to wonder if it was worth three um, convicted Islamic terrorists for each one of those people, uh, three convicted Islamic terrorists for 80-year-old women, listen, I understand they've been through a lot. I, I, I am delighted they're free. But think of the cost. And then think of what happened when they came back into uh, Gaza. The first group was brought into Gaza, and there must have been 100,000, of course, innocent Gazians on the street cheering as if it were a parade of, of famed athletes going through the streets draped in the Hamas flag. Yep. What is the consequence of that? You you know, if you save one life, 
but you you lose a thousand. That's not an intelligent trade. I mean, a, a great example: the United States uh, surprise attack, which we were just sleeping and stupid on uh, Pearl Harbor, cost three thousand uh, service personnel. America sacrificed three hundred thousand, getting revenge on Imperial Japan. That's not intelligent. That's not moral. That is right. not a victory. And what's happening here is that by saving a hundred, Israel has likely risked the lives of a hundred thousand. I get it. I understand the the deep emotion and satisfaction of bringing a child back. But at what cost? Israel is in a no-win scenario. You know, its leaders want to say we're going to wipe out Hamas, we're going to kill them all, and going to make Israel safe again. You can't do that. It's impossible. That's right. It, it, because you can't. They're not wearing uniform. Well, that's what some of them do now. But for the most part, they're not wearing uniform. You can't tell one of them for a. Um, a civilian Baker. Yeah. and you know you look at the women and they're more belligerent than the men actually they're forming now jihad uh, organizations where they want to assert their rights as muslim women and go kill jews and are learning to to do so but right. a woman in those in that community is nothing but a jihad manufacturing plant yep that's what she is true a baby in that community is a jihadist in training. It'd be kind of like saying, you know, there's a new virus out, but this one just mutated, so it'd be unfair to harass it or kill it. it hasn't killed anybody yet. That's the problem. The entire Gaza area is infected with Islam. And Islam is incurable. Islam is deadly. Islam exists to annihilate Jews. It cannot be tolerated. You cannot coexist with Islam in your home. Far more deadly than the bubonic plague. It's 100% lethal. No one survives it. That's the reason I'm rewriting Prophet of Doom is goddamn religion. But that's where we are. That's a report by the first the Washington Post and then um, the New York Times um, exposing the utter and complete failure of Israeli intelligence and the utter and complete failure of the Israeli government and the utter and complete failure of the IDF. I understand the IDF right now is in Gaza and the, the young men and women who fight in the IDF for extraordinary. Uh, I am, you know, anti-military except that one um, because of the people who are in it, because of, of the fact that they're surrounded by more than 100 to 1 by people who are, are savages and hate them, who yeah. will rape, 
them, tortured them, and then have millions of Muslims around the world celebrate it and condemn the Jews for, uh, for it happening. So I can appreciate the, the merit of the IDF, not its leadership, however. Sure. And clearly, Bibi Netanyahu is not qualified to lead that country. No. He should have resigned. He needs to resign. Right. And I've listened to the speeches of uh, Gallant, the Secretary of Defense, and um, that's not what they call a, a title, but um, he is not a very smart man. And the person that's got a chance of leading that country is Gantz, Benny Gantz. And, well, I think Benny Gantz is a man of character, which puts him light years beyond these other fools. Um, and he, he has pathos. He has, he has an ability to connect with people. Um, but he's not the smartest tool in the shed either. And you, you just listen to him talk, and you, and you want to kickstart him. There's no fire there. No charisma there. Israel needs a leader desperately. And these guys aren't it. And Israel's in a lose-lose scenario. I think that the world has made that perfectly clear. You know, here's the United Nations saying that their, particularly United Nations uh, Agency for Human Rights and and others that are screaming that Israel reengaging in this war is just this terrible violation and a war crime, when there were hostages who were kept in the attic of UN employees and starved. Mm-hmm. UN employees participated in the kidnapping. They're not an independent agency. They're not a peacekeeping force. They're aiding and abetting terrorists. The Red Cross, what a useless agency. Yeah. Yeah. Those hospitals there, they weren't taking care of sick people. Well, yeah, they were because Hamas leadership is sick. This whole thing is so upside down that no matter what Israel does, it would have to completely obliterate Gaza and use bulldozers to open the gates into Sinai and let them all run free in the Sinai to have any chance of surviving them. And they'd have to do the same thing in Judea and Samaria, which is called the West Bank. And yet Israel wants to tell the Gazians that you're not the enemy. Hamas is. There's no distinction. The Gazians are Hamas. Hamas is the Gazians. Hamas is the most popular organization in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. They say so themselves. Some people don't right. want to listen in the United States. It's crazy. So this is, uh, this is a problem. It is not resolvable. The world's going to continue to tighten the noose on Israel. Uh, there was a country mm-hmm. in Europe, I think it was Denmark, that uh, sold some uh, uh, F-35 jet parts uh, to Israel 
um, and they're being brought up on the International Criminal Court on uh, on war crimes because they sold F-35 parts to Israel. Right now, China is vocally opposing Israel. Russia, vocally opposing Israel. The European Union doing the same thing. And of course, so are the 50-some-odd Muslim-majority nations. A very, very tough time for Israel. I so wish that I had started on goddamn religion um, several months ago. I've still got, I would assume, two months of work. Uh, for those that do not know, the first volume of goddamn religion, uh, 400 and, excuse me, uh, 660 pages approximately, um, is now published. Uh, thank you, uh, edit team and, uh, and uh, Jackie. It's also uh, presented now in its entirety on the uh, uh, Yada Yada site. Thank you, uh, David. Um, uh, yeah. And uh, it, it is a it's a marvelous work. It is funny. It, it is, is direct. It is blunt. Uh, it uh, it's like nothing else ever written. Yeah. And Agreed. it is absolutely devastating to to Islam on behalf of Israel. Yes. And so the first volume is uh, is published in its entirety free on the site. Go to the far right of the bookshelf. You'll find it uh, there. Um, the uh, is also in hardback and, and paperback on uh, on Amazon. Um, and now, in terms of editing, I'm on page 500 in volume uh, two. We're going to cover excerpts of volume two in this program uh, tonight. Um, and so we are. Uh, we're getting there. I've, I would assume that within three weeks, uh, volume two of Goddamn Religion will be published. Um, within about uh, a week and a half, I will be finished with the editing of it and have moved into uh, volume three. So this is volume two. It's called uh, uh, Satanic. Um, it's so uh, kind of a literary with the Titanic, and uh, this is uh, uh, Israel's Titanic, and if they don't listen, they will sink with it. Uh, this particular chapter uh, is called, With Whom Am I Speaking? The byline is, I'm afraid something bad has happened to me. The Quran starts off no better than Muhammad himself. The prophet's first revelation was a fiasco. But so not to prejudice this historic beginning of Islam, I'm going to let the first Muslims do it for us. So let's begin with the ungod of Islam had to say in his inaugural Quran address. This demonic encounter isn't in the first surah. It isn't even inscribed in the first 50 chapters. Nope. It's buried at the end of the book. Great. The surah that started Islam and the Quran is named Al-Alaq. That means the clot. The 96th of what Muslims will claim is 114 surahs. It's really 113 because the first was never revealed. Hmm. Quran 96.1. Read, 
in the name of your Lord who created, has created man from a clot. Read, and your Lord is most bountiful, who taught by the pen, taught man what he did not know. That's it. The whole shebang. The moment of moments. The birth of Islam. An unnamed spirit representing an unidentified Lord reveals himself to Muhammad and all we get is this. Why would an all-knowing deity ask an illiterate man to read? Why does the spirit tell us that man was created from blood clots when that's not true. If the spirit taught by the pen what man did not know, where are those words? And why digress to an oral recital when written testimony is infinitely superior? It's not only an unauspicious beginning for a religion capable of ensnarling two billion souls. There just has to be a cogent explanation. Yet the Quran, which garners its name from the first word of the first revelation, the Hebrew Kara, makes no attempt, none at all, to explain the nature of the Meaning, a meeting, or the meaning of the message. There are but a handful of not-so-credible accounts of what happened that night that are presented in the traditions, the Sunnah, the Hadith collections. Without them, Muslims would be left to scratch their heads and said, What? So let's turn to Bukhari first. In his book of Revelation, we find a hadith narrated by Aisha, Muhammad's child wife. She was six and the daughter of Abu Bakr, the man who became the first caliph when uh, Muhammad started to fondle her. She had yet to be conceived when this event allegedly occurred in a cave overlooking the ruins of Petra. Bukhari reports, The commencement of divine inspiration to Allah's messenger was in the form of dreams that came true like a bright light. The prophet loved the seclusion of a cave in Hira. The angel came to him and asked him to read. The prophet replied, I do not know how to read. The prophet added, Then the angel came and caught me forcibly and pressed me so hard that I could not bear it anymore. He released me and asked me to read. I replied, I do not know how to read. Thereupon he caught me again and he pressed me till I could not bear it anymore. And he asked me to read, but I replied, I do not know how to read. Or perhaps I said, what shall I read? Thereupon, he caught me for the third time, and he pressed me, Read in the name of your Lord, who has created man from a blood clot. Read in the name of your Lord, 
who has created man from a clot. Read, your Lord is most generous. Then the apostle returned from that experience. The muscles between his neck and shoulders were trembling, and his heart was beating severely. He went to Kajita, that was his wife, who was also his employer, who was at least 20 years older than he, and cried, Cover me! Cover me! She did until his fear subsided. He said, What's wrong with me? I'm afraid something bad has happened to me. Kajita replied, Never! By Allah, Allah will never disgrace you. Allah's name, it wasn't mentioned in the first Quran, surah. In fact, Muhammad's God remained an unnamed Lord throughout the first 17 Quran revelations. When the Lord is finally identified, his name was Ar-Rahman, not Allah. Further, the chronic introduction came by way of an, a rather ill-informed and uneducated spirit, most likely a demon. Although I'll make this point later in this chapter. Do either of you know the Hebrew words for Lord, since Arabic mm-hmm. is a derivative of Hebrew? What are the two Hebrew words for Lord? I know Baal. Baal and Adon. Baal and Adon. Those are the two. And uh, this uh, uh, opening salvo, which I will prove later, I'll transliterate it for you, was written in Hebrew. No kidding. Reed was uh, from Kara. Uh, Ba is N. Name was Shem. Guess what Lord was? It wasn't Baal. It wasn't no. Adon. Nope. Oh. Who sold Muhammad the stories that he used to comprise the religiosity of his Rabbi. Quran? The rabbis. Guess what the word for Lord is? Rabba. Rabba. Wow. Yep. Unbelievably stupid of the rabbis to have done that. They created their own monster. It is curious then that this crucial Islamic hadith elected to contradict the Quran and call God Allah when it uh, doesn't name him. Equally curious, why did Muhammad's wife, the pagan Kajita, Swear by Allah when the God bore the God who bore that name was simply at that point one of many rock gods in the rock pile known as the Kaaba. In fact, Allah wasn't even among the top five. The answers are simple, they're different, and they are revealing. Asia, the source of this hadith didn't reveal it until after the prophet's death, long after our Rachman's name had been incorporated into Allah's character. As for Kajita, Allah held the keys to something she and her husband coveted. 
the various accounts of what happened this night over 1,400 years ago are consistently inconsistent. And while that's bad as it relates to their uh, recreationist portrayals of creation and the patriarchs as we uh, were studying them these last few weeks, those events were from another time, another people, another place, uh, and definitely another book, which they twisted to suit their agenda. Now Muslims are without excuses. Islam began in their midst, on their watch, and through their clan. We aren't dealing with things that occurred two to 4,000 years BCE. This is 610 CE. Contradiction is now condemning, for it forces us to recognize that all Islamic scripture was conceived and preserved in like fashion, originating from an idiot and conveyed through oral transmission, almost all hearsay. If these recollections aren't reliable, nothing is. The second and third versions of the first revelation are found in Tabati and Muslim, both hadith collections, one topical, the other one historical. Tabati, volume 6, page 67. Aisha reported, Solitude became dear to Muhammad, and he used to seclude himself in the cave of Hira, where he would engage in the Tahanuth, pagan religious rites performed in Ramadan, including fasting. Well, let that sink in a bit, and I'll finish the hadith. He would worship for a number of nights, returning to Kajita and getting provisions for a like period, till truth came to him while he was in a cave. The first form of revelation was a true vision in sleep. He didn't see anything, but it came like the break of dawn. Muslim reports, the truth came unexpectedly and said, recite, to which he replied, I am not lettered. The apostle said, he took hold of me and pressed me until I was hard pressed. He let me off and said, recite. I said, I'm not lettered. This uninspired banter carried on as before until the Tarek, which is the history, picks up the story of the ongoing nightmare with this line. Muhammad, you are the messenger. If that is what the pen intended to teach, why not say so? It wasn't in the Quran. And if this fellow was going to be the Lord's teacher... Why did he pick an illiterate numbskull? Good question. You know, we were talking, um, uh, I don't know when this, but fairly recently, right before the show, I think, actually, but um, the fact that you've got three iterations of, uh, of Satan influencing people, and you can look at the result, but the, the really interesting comparison is between mm-hmm. Paul, who was demon-possessed, and Muhammad, who was demon-possessed. And mm-hmm. when it, it, it becomes really obvious that Satan, who is the one who is the Lord of 
of both religions, uh, is incompetent on his own. He is totally impotent. He can't write. And so he is dependent on the implement he is working through. Paul was trained to be a rabbi. He was a conniving uh, con man, for sure. And so with Paul, while he contradictions galore and misappropriations and uh, and all manner of misconstruing Yahweh's testimony, um, the Christian New Testament takes some work to rebuke. Muhammad was dumb as a stone. He, he was illiterate. And as such, the Quran is the worst book ever not written. Never written in 100 years of Muhammad's life. And, and so Satan is limited by the implement he chooses to possess. And so you'd say, well, there had to be somebody literate, uh, certainly in other places in the world. Why did he slither out into the desert? And this happens to be now in, uh, in Petra. Uh, but Petra was in ruins by this time. It, this was 300 years after the, uh, the earthquake devastated it, um, almost 250 years after the earthquake and in the 4th century devastated the place. Um, why go there and pick this numbskull? And it, it just, well, no, I, I think the, there, there's a reason for that. Dumb for dumb? And, and that is that you know, Satan wants a religion for everybody. You know, there's the religion for the conceited who think they're smarter than God. It's called Judaism. There's a religion for uh, those who are anti-Semitic, but nonetheless uh, want to move away from mainstream paganism and can be hoodwinked um, fairly readily by some uh, conniving rhetoric, Christianity. But most people don't think. Most people are uh, just go through the motions. And so he needed a religion for, for numbskulls. Islam found the perfect messenger to create a religion for people who do not think. Point, by the way. Uh, I don't know if I wrote it in this chapter or another one. Uh, yeah. The British did a, a comprehensive IQ evaluation of the residents of Gaza. The average IQ in uh, average IQ in Gaza is 67.9. No way. Yep. The average IQ, by the way, of Jews is uh, is 115. Yeah. It's almost two to one. Wow. What follows is convoluted, out of order, and conflicting, just like the Quran. The Prophet said. I had been uh, standing, but I fell to my knees. Now, we've just heard that he was asleep. But nonetheless, now he's standing, and he fell to his knees, and he crawled away, my shoulders trembling. I went to Kajita and said, wrap me, wrap me. When the terror had left me, he came to me and said, Muhammad, you are the messenger of Allah. Muhammad said, I had been thinking of hurling myself down from the mountain crack. In other words, I wanted to commit suicide. But he appeared to me as I was thinking about this and said, I am Gabriel, 
and you are the messenger. Then he said, recite. I said, what shall I recite? He took me and pressed me three times. I told Kajita, I fear for my life. She said, rejoice for Allah. We'll never put you to shame. Well, there are significant differences between these versions and insights worth examining. I want to focus on the most incriminating details. In the first version, that of the Quran, an unnamed demon in an unidentified location at an undisclosed time without context or introduction tells an illiterate man to read. Then he lied, claiming that humans were created from a clot while making a grammatical mistake in the first sentence. He demands a second time that this person read without waiting for a response to the first command or offering the undisclosed individual anything to read. The spirit, whom we will discover, lurked in a dark cave, assumed that the unidentified man had a bountiful lord, even though he had offered him nothing. The spirit concludes by professing that an inanimate object, in this case an unidentified pen, intended to teach what men did not know. There was no salutation or conclusion. Therefore, by any rational standard, this was a horrendous beginning. And, of course, it only gets worse from here. In the second version, that found in Bukhati's Hadith collections, we are told that this embarrassing pronouncement was the commencement of divine inspiration to Allah's messenger. That being the case, Allah's career as a god crashed before it got off the ground. In the Bukhati Hadith, the encounter occurred as a dream which would have been while the would-be messenger was sleeping. We are told that the bundle of Quranic errors and anomalies, which such as asking an illiterate man to read and then demanding it a second time without providing anything to read ever, came true like a bright light. And that's particularly odd, since Allah wasn't there, Clots are not the means of conception, and inanimate objects do not make good teachers. After telling us that Allah's messenger was dreaming, we are told that he loved the seclusion of a cave. That would make him a damn poor choice as a messenger. In the Hadith, we are told that the visitor to the secluded cave where the prophet was sleeping was an angel even though this was Allah's divine inspiration to his messenger. Wouldn't that make Allah the angel rather than God? Since we were told of the Quran that an angel came to visit him. Yeah. And he was ill-informed at best, since we now have affirmation that Muhammad was indeed illiterate making the request absurd. The Hadith also states that the experience was unpleasant because the spiritual being was forcibly pressing me so hard that I could not bear it anymore. Allah was therefore abusive. He was also repetitive, making the same demand a second and third time. Well, in the Hadith, 
It's only two times in the Quran. Somebody can't count the heck with Arabic numerals. Although the in the Hadith, unlike the Quran, Muhammad was able to talk as he was having the life pressed out of him. And on the third iteration of this foolishness, Muhammad even admits that he was given nothing to read, which would continue to be the case throughout his entire life. In the Hadith, there are three iterations of read, while in the Quran, there are only two. And in the Hadith, the Quran's grammar is corrected. Then we learn more from the Hadith than we do the Quran. Muhammad returned home from his bad dream in the cave, but was an emotional mess, trembling rather than excited. He was also terrified by the experience. A grown man pleaded with his aging wife to cover him up. Muhammad even admitted that there was something terribly wrong with him, which is now blatantly apparent. However, his rich wife is having nothing of it. She doesn't want her husband disgraced and humiliated by this meeting with the devil and therefore claims that Allah will make something out of it, something that is good for them. And then in the case, revelation comes after the terrifying encounter and encouragement from Kajita. Then moving to Dabari and Muslim, we find yet another incriminating acknowledgement. Muhammad was in the cave engaging in pagan religious rites of Ta'anut, which is religious worship, making this part of an ongoing Ramadan fest before Islam was even invented, making it pagan. And in version three, this wasn't just a dream. Muhammad was fast asleep. Moreover, we are told that the non-prophet didn't see anything, not even a revelation, just the break of dawn. And that's telling because Satan is the lord of the dawn. That's what his name means, Halal bin Shakar. Yeah. In an informed and rational world, there would have been no Qurans to burn because there would never have been any reason to print one. It's hard to overstate just how awful this really is. And a, if a would-be author took this to a publisher, they would laugh him or her out of the office. Yeah. The Tariq's variation would go on to say that the victim of spiritual abuse had been Muhammad and that he was now the messenger. Of who? And what? Contradicting everything we have been told thus far, this time Muhammad was standing rather than sleeping. He fell to his knees and then crawled away, frightened, indeed terrified. What kind of spirit would deliberately do that to a man? Then comes the most damaging admission of all. After being abused by his wannabe God, Muhammad tried unsuccessfully to commit suicide. Couldn't even do that right. At which point, Muhammad becomes delusional. And after the bout with Allah in the cave, in which he saw nothing, 
he sees Gabriel, who reassures him. So this, <laughs> once again, happen. leads to the inescapable conclusion that the demonic angel in the cave was Allah. Because he didn't meet Gabriel until he tried to commit suicide. <laughs> it's all becoming a hellish nightmare for Islam. This is so peculiar because the Quran says nothing of Gabriel during the first 12 years of Muhammad's mission. Not a peep. We are not introduced until the first surah and Yathrib, which was the 91st chronologically. Since Muhammad alleges that Gabriel was the source of his godly revelation, these inconsistencies devastate his credibility. And oh, by the way, he was played for a fool. The majority of the residents in Petra uh, at this time were Christians. And they were sure because of old Uncle Luke that Gabriel was out there uh, pronouncing the arrival of the Messiahs. And so, you know, the, the, the people of Petra were saying, wait a minute, you claim to be a Messiah type, but there was no Gabriel that came and pronounced you like, you know, they did uh, Jesus, our Jesus. Yeah, yeah, his mommy had a, uh, Gabriel come. Where's your Gabriel? <laughs> That's the only reason that, that Gabriel came into the story. And oh, by the way, Luke is a fairy tale. Gabriel's not an angel. Has anybody ever bothered to look at how Gabriel is written? It's a Hebrew name. It means Gabor El. Yeah. Well, El is God. What's Gabor? Courageous and capable man. A Gabor is a man. Even in the book of Daniel, when Daniel says that he sees him, Gabriel, he says, he's a man. Yep. Gabriel's not an angel. He's a man. <laughs> and he's not just a man. He is the man. Gabriel is Dode, David. And I can assure you, if Joe David came down and he met Muhammad, Muhammad wouldn't have lasted two seconds. Yeah. You know, if he did Goliath in with a single stone, I don't think he had even wasted the stone on <laughs> this number skull. He might have done a two for one, though. Hit him over the head with the olive stone. Uh, that'll do. Uh, that known, please buckle your seatbelts because I'd like to share the most esteemed version of Islam's initial revelation. It's a bit more colorful and comes courtesy of Ishak's Sirah, or biography of Muhammad, compiled uh, just a shade over 100 years before the other sources, uh, about 100 years after Muhammad's death. Ishak, page 105. Asha said, now, when it comes to testimony, Asha, uh, she's the real deal. Um, nobody knows Muhammad better than this little girl. You know, she was there from right in his bed from the you know the beginning. 
No, so it doesn't get any better than Aisha. She's uh, uh, can't be impugned. Abused she was, but mm-hmm. uh, she's actually got some wit about her. Some of the things that she says are amazing. When, uh, when uh, for example, uh, Mohammed, uh, well, he's still in Petra. Uh, he uh, gets access to a very young uh, slave uh, from Egypt, probably a Copt Christian uh, girl. And first thing he does is he takes her into uh, um, his um, headquarters, if you will, in Petra, which is, you know, probably just an an open area on one of the floors of what had been a a temple. And uh, he has sex with her. Sex with a slave is rape. And she was a child. It's also pedophilia. And uh, Aisha and uh, Muhammad's other wife at the time said, you know, this is repulsive. Uh, pedophilia is bad. Rape is bad. And you did this in our bed. Shame on you. And Muhammad recognized that, that what he was doing was wrong until he wanted to do it again. And when the, his wife protested, said, no, you told us you wouldn't do this anymore. She's a child. She's a slave. This is wrong. Uh, 33rd Surah comes and Allah says, whatever Muhammad wants to do, we gave him a special dispensation. He should enjoy himself and do whatever pleases him. And as for you women, if you continue to complain, we will replace you. And we will replace you with, with girls and virgins that are much better than you. So I would warn you, obey. And so Asia's response to that is, your uh, God sure seems to indulge your every whim. So this is an interesting woman, Asia, a girl at this time. Asia said that Allah desired to honor Muhammad. The first sign of prophethood was a vision in brightness of day, not night, shown to him in his sleep. In other words, he was dreaming. And he, he liked nothing better than to be alone. And when he left Mecca, there was no house in sight. Every stone and tree that passed by said, peace be unto you. Allah's apostle. Muhammad would turn around and see not, but trees and stones. In other words, he was stoned. By the way, (laughs) it's not just the trees and stones talk to him. It's not just that the trees and stones were the only ones that actually recognized that he was Allah's apostle. It's the trees and the stones that are doing the walking. It says when the trees and the stones passed by him. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, He stayed seeing and hearing things. He stayed seeing and hearing things. As long as it pleased Allah. Then Gabriel came to him with the gift of Allah's grace, the which was the spiritual beating, while he was on <laughs> Ira in the month of Ramadan. The apostle would pray in seclusion on Hira every year for a month to practice Ta'unoth, uh, as was the custom of the Quraysh in the heathen days. In other words, Muhammad was a heathen. <laughs> and the 
Islamic pillar requiring Ramadan fasting, who was pagan. Tana'uth is religious devotion. The hadith continues, of course, to pagan gods. After praying in seclusion, he would walk around the Kaaba seven times. The centerpiece of the Hajj pillar is now pagan as well. The promotions were coming rapidly, of course. In the Quran, he was unidentified in the first hadith. He became a messenger. In the second, he was uh, uh, now named. Now, uh, in the third, he is a prophet. With another variation, he might be elevated to God. Who knows? Lord knows he wouldn't do any worse. He wouldn't do any worse than Allah. Um, in this rendition, Muhammad was sleeping in the middle of the day, which would make him a bum. He remains a loner, uh, which, if things had continued that way, would have been better for everyone. Yeah. He hears stones and trees talk to him, which would make him psychotic and either bipolar or schizophrenic. Yeah. Although there is a third potential diagnosis because those who hallucinate about being harmed while claiming to hear things never said more commonly suffer from the incurable and horrifically irritating malady known as borderline personality disorder. These delusional and aggravating malcontents perceive that they are being victimized and that they are underappreciated, akin to what we have read throughout the never-ending argument. This empathy disorder explains why the Quran's dialogue isn't credible, why lies are presented as if they were true, and why the text is so contentious. Moving on to another portrayal of the Quran's inception, we find our second affirmation that the Ramadan fast and circumambulating the Kaaba were pagan, with both derived from the Ta'anuth religious devotions. They were cultic traditions of the Quraysh, the vast majority of whom were opposed to Muhammad, Allah, Islam, and the Quran. This is devastating to the myth of Islam, especially the myth that it was a monotheistic religion brought by Muhammad. Mm -hmm. Simply not true, according to the Islamic. However, there's another ticking time bomb looking within these variant presentations of this demonic encounter. While the Quran will not mention Gabriel's mythical role as the spiritual contact between the un-God and non-prophet, for more than a decade, since these hadith were composed two or three centuries after the fact, Muhammad's invisible accomplice was backdated into the story to resolve the nagging problem. Who was in the cave? Why was the spirit, and by the way, it's uh, left the way the Quran reads, you got one choice. The angel in the cave is Allah. Mm-hmm. And so... They want to backdate it and now put Gabriel in the cave, but most of the Hadiths don't put Gabriel in the cave, but out of the cave. Which means the angel in the cave, who acted demonically, was Allah. 
which would make Allah Satan. Mm -hmm. Why was the spirit so deranged that it tried to suffocate Muhammad, pressing himself into him forcibly, and with such trauma, Muhammad himself admitted that he had been demon-possessed to the point he tried to commit suicide? If this was Allah, why was he acting like Satan? If an angel, why so demonic? And that was just the beginning of the Quranic headache. There were many Christians in Petra at this time, and they were mocking Muhammad because he arrived without an angelic announcement, something we know because this vocal criticism was repeated throughout the never-ending argument. They asked, why was no angel sent to him? Christians had been led to believe, through the fables contrived in the hearsay Gospel of Luke, that an angel named Gabriel had come to a woman named Mary to announce the arrival of a God named Jesus. Well, none of that was true. Since Muhammad was claiming to be better than Jesus, he was rejected because Gabriel hadn't foretold his arrival. As a result, the creators of Islam in Baghdad worked Gabriel into the Hadith, that they were writing to solve these persistent criticisms, simply adding him to their mythology. After all, they would, you know, who's now going to argue against the imaginary fiend of someone without friends, especially when doing so, would typically result in decapitation, as it does even to this day. However, while Gabriel can be used to explain why Allah is never heard or seen, while he can be blamed for abusing Muhammad in the cave, and while he can be used to make the non-prophet appear invincible when threatened, even on par with that Jesus fellow, this imaginary fiend wields a two-edged sword. It renders the most repeated theme in the Quran, its never-ending argument, false. How could no angel have been sent to him if an angel had been dispatched to him at the very initiation of these revelations? When it's repeated that this was the claim against Muhammad, never once does Muhammad say, oh yeah? He, he was there at the first time, never once. Why? Because it didn't happen. And how can Allah work alone without partners, without helpers, without co-workers associated with him if in any recital, much less every revelation, was through Gabriel? Wouldn't that make him a partner? And under those circumstances, how can the Quran have been revealed by a first-person narrator if someone other than its schizophrenic wannabe God was speaking? Further, when asked incessantly why no angel was sent to him, why didn't Gabriel, Allah, say, hey, he's been there from the beginning? Even worse. If we were to play along and assume that Muhammad encountered a demon and uh, uh, encountered a, I should say, a demanding 
ill-informed, misleading, and mean-spirit entity in the cave, while being religious, who forced himself on Muhammad, resulting in Muhammad attempting suicide because he thought he had been demon-possessed, then isn't the only rational conclusion that he was possessed by one of Satan's emissaries? Isn't that the conclusion of Oscar Drazer? It would explain the Quran's hatred of Yehudim. It would explain the Quran's claims to the Torah. It would explain the Quran's fixation on death and its insistence that a devilish imposter was greater than God Almighty. Ishak 106 continues, The prophet set off to Hira with his family. When it was night, Gabriel brought him the command of Allah. He came to me, the apostle said, while I was asleep, with a coverlet of brocade, whereupon was some writing, and said, Read. I said, What shall I read? Wait a minute. He just handed you the brocade whereupon was some writing. He pressed me so tightly that I was near death. Then he let me go and said, Read. This happens twice more than when I thought I was nearly dead. I said, What shall I read? I said so only to deliver myself from him, lest he should do the same thing to me again. He said, Read in the name of your Lord who created man from a clot of blood coagulated. Read your generous Lord taught by the pen. (laughs) Then the illiterate man said, So I read it. (laughs) He departed from me, and I woke from my sleep. These words were written on my heart. How would you know you're illiterate? Ishak (laughs) reports that, like Moses, Muhammad was a reluctant troubadour. And he did not previously respect those who, like him, were demon-possessed. Oh, it says, this is Ishak 106, none of Allah's creatures was more hateful to me than an ecstatic poet or a man who was possessed. I thought, woe is me, I am a possessed poet. thing that can befall a man or a woman is to be possessed by the devil. He or she loses all sense of decency. To his credit, Muhammad recognized what had happened. To his shame, he damned billions of souls along with his own. Demon possession is rare. Previous to Muhammad, the most infamous victim had been Paul, the author and inspiration behind the Christian New Testament. He had a similar horrific encounter, which was blinding and laming, with Satan on the road to Damascus. And he, was, he would actually admit being uh, demon-possessed at the conclusion of 2 Corinthians. Prior to this, we were told that another Shaul, this one Israel's preferred leader, circa 1000 BCE, was also demon-possessed. Muhammad admitted it, and his peers recognized it, repeating the accusation throughout the never-ending argument. And frankly, it is the only viable explanation of what we witness in Muhammad's life 
and what we read in the Quran. Witnessing its ill effects in King uh, Shaul, the Apostle Paul, and now the Messenger Muhammad. The result is disorienting. It's disquieting. It's degrading. Therefore, Ishak reports, I will go to the top of the mountain. and I will throw myself down so that I might kill myself and be at rest. Imagine that. You go into a cave to be religious. You meet with your Lord and your fixation is to commit suicide. No. I spent a lot of time with Yahweh. <laughs> Some 15 hours a day, seven days a week. have done so for 22 years. I can tell you for certain at no time did he press the life out of me. At no time did I, uh, I leave the encounter saying, you know what I think, I want to go kill myself. Same. He's a delight to Never work happened. for. He's a, with maybe an exception or two, he's the easiest boss in the universe to work for. <laughs> you know, when I tried to wiggle my way out of rewriting Prophet of Doom, which I'm glad he didn't let me do, um, because I didn't want to go back into the pit of hell, because uh, yeah. I knew it was going to take three or four months to uh, to do it. Uh, uh, you know, it, uh, he, he was not too pleased with me. And, you know, I got the line, uh, I've taken care of you, now take care of my people. So yeah. he can he can be blunt when he needs to be. But that wasn't mean. No, I was the one that was being an idiot. It was actually a very appropriate thing for a father to say. Yahweh is a delight to work with. It's, he is uplifting. He is emancipating. He is enlightening. He is enriching. The exact opposite yeah, of what uh, Muhammad uh, experienced. Well, no doubt, Islam's nonprofit was now hearing voices. The rocks were speaking to him. He didn't actually make all of this up. It's, it's true. Uh, and this is his confession. And it rings true because there is no better explanation for how Muslims behaved on October 7th, 2023, or how the world over, these very slaves to Allah, have celebrated the actions of uh, these very actions of what happened on October 7th, which was included marauding mass murderers and rapists and terrorists and Muslims getting off torturing and kidnapping children. And yet that's what we're witnessing. You know that the children that were abducted were branded by the Muslims. They were drugged by them. These are monsters. They're incapable of coexisting Everything we will read from this point forward, whether it be in the Quran or Hadith, is a product of this episode in the cave, which left Muhammad knowing that he had been demon-possessed. He was now Satan's pawn, the devil's advocate, a revolting reflection of his Lord. 
terrorized by the demon within him, Muhammad wanted to commit suicide, something that Satan could not allow. He had big plans for his prophet, Ishak 106. So I climbed to the mountain to kill myself when I heard a voice saying, Muhammad, you are Allah's apostle. I raised my head to see who was speaking, and lo, I saw Gabriel in the form of a man. Yeah, that's a good one there, pal. With his feet astride the horizon. Well, he was a big man. So how, pray tell, would our terrified and possessed poet distinguish between Gabriel and Satan? And since the first revelation was sinister, that's a problem. Moreover, if Muhammad could see him, why couldn't anyone else? Especially since he was evidently enormous. And why, if the spirit in the cave had been Gabriel, couldn't Muhammad see him then? How did he fit in the cave, since he was so big? Why was there no introduction? And why pick this name? If you're following along, the answers are both obvious and horrifying. From Bukhari, the prophet said, A good dream is from Allah. And a bad dream is from Satan. By his own admission, this had been a nightmare. Mm-hmm. I stood gazing at him, and that distracted me from committing suicide, Ishak reports. I couldn't move. Kajita sent her messengers in search of me, and they gained the high ground above what this says Mecca was Petra. So I came to her and sat by her thigh. She said, Oh, Abdul Qasim, where have you been? I said, Woe is me, I am possessed. She said, I take refuge in Allah from that, Abdul Qasim. Allah would not treat you that way. This cannot be, my dear. Perhaps you did see something. Kachita said, the wheels of commerce turning in her head. Yes, I did, I said, playing along. I told her of what I had seen. Well, I was asleep. She said, rejoice, son of my uncle, and be of good cheer. Verily, by him whose hand is Kachita's soul, I have hope that you will be a prophet to this people. And with that, the profitable prophet plan was born. She gathered her garments and went to her cousin, Waraka ben Nufal, the Hanif, who had been a, who had become, I should say, a Christian. He read the scriptures and learned from those who followed the Torah and Gospels. Before we read the embellishments, Tabati provides. Um, let's pause now and reflect just a moment on the realizations that these hadith have not only described a hellish encounter with the spirit, but also that Muhammad has now admitted on three occasions that he was demon-possessed at the very initiation of his Quranic revelations. Every hadith collection not only says the same thing, the sources are as impeccable as is possible in Islam. 
They come from Muhammad's first and second wife. If Muhammad was demon-possessed, as every Sunnah source claims, when trying to make sense of his first inspired revelation, then the Quran is Satan's recital, and Muslims worship the devil. If Muhammad was not demon-possessed, then he was a liar, and his companions cannot be trusted. And since they serve as the lone conduit to the Quran, it cannot be trusted. Simply stated, the birth of Islam was a miscarriage. The religion was born dead. It is either satanic or untrustworthy. Or both. I could conclude goddamn religion at the point of the Quran's conception and pale and prevail in my debate against Allah and Muhammad, the Quran and Hadith. They have self-destructed and they have admitted defeat. And if not for the men and women, boys and girls, infected with this demonic tripe and the fact that they have become slaves to Allah, who are now calling for the annihilation of Jews, I can assure you I would move on to more pleasant things. Sure. They are. So we can't, and we won't. Tabati reports, he went to Kajita and said, I think that I have gone mad. Oh, no, by Allah, she said, your Lord would never do that to you. You have never committed a wicked act. <coughs> something sure as hell changed him. Kajita went to Waraka, who told him what, and she told him what had happened. He said, if what you have said is true, your husband is a prophet. And this Gabriel did not come to him for a while. And Kajita said, now I think your Lord must hate you. So much for the supportive wife. Well, the opposite was now obvious to everyone, including Muhammad. No one wants a madman in their bed, even if he had uh, not committed a wicked act during the first 40 to 58 years of his life. That would change abruptly. By the way, I say 40 to 58. Muslims are convinced that Muhammad was born in uh, 570 CE, uh, because that would have made him 40 years old, and which would have been the ripe age, according to um, uh, Arab pagan mythology, to have become custodian of the Kaaba. And so they backdate mm-hmm. his, uh, um, since he spent 12 years in Mecca, they claim, they backdate his birth exactly 40 years to what they call the year of the elephant in 570. But the year of the elephant is actually quite well documented. Rabbi uh, was uh, a, a general uh, and king from, uh, uh, from what is today Ethiopia uh, that uh, crossed over the, uh, the Gulf to war with uh, the Yemenites, uh, who were kin, actually, but they had uh, accepted uh, Judaism while he and his clan had accepted Christianity. And so they had a little holy war uh, there. And... Uh, the, the big shot came astride an elephant. And so uh, it was called the year of the elephant when he uh, led this attack 
And legend has it that Muhammad was born in the year of the elephant. And Allah celebrates this because he has a surah on the, uh, on the elephant as the punitive peas that the birds drop on the elephant that caused them to turn to goo. Uh, anyway, the year of the elephant is well known. It's 552 CE, which would make Muhammad 18 years older than he is reported to be. So that would mean that rather than Muhammad being 53 when he had sex with the six-year-old girl, no, he was 68. <laughs> There's a reason that his sexual partners were either slaves or children. Well, the opposite is now obvious to everyone, including Muhammad. No one wants, as I say, a madman in their bed. So Kachita came up with another plan to protest. Otherwise, Kachita solicited the endorsement of Waraka, the leading Christian in Petra, but he wasn't much of... Uh, uh, of a commendation since it began with if what you have said is true but alas it was not <laughs> this was followed by the beginning of the messenger's prophetic mission <clears throat> he used to spend a month every year in the religious retreat on Hira this was part of the practice of Ta'unath in which the Koresh used to engage during the period of ignorance pre-Islam. Ta'unath means self-justification, end quote. That's intriguing. Muhammad practiced a pagan time of ignorance relig uh, religious ritual. An ignorant pre-Islamic form of pagan worship. Which more, the very definition of Taunoth, self-justification, became synonymous with the Prophet's personal agenda. So much for Muhammad's claim of having uh, been prevented from uh, doing any pagan act because he admits that he was a practicing pagan. The deeper we dig into the initial salvo, the worse it gets. So hold your breath if we must, because, or hold your nose, I should say, if you must, because it's time to poke around. We, we know that Muhammad was a recluse, a hermit who preferred solitude to people. The fact that he spent so much time alone in caves instead of being home as a parent and husband or at work being productive is troubling. Yes, he was being religious, but even that is problematic. As an idolater, he practiced the heathen Ta'unoth rituals, fasting, self-justification, and mediation during the pagan holy month of Ramadan. He disappeared into caves for spiritual awakening, calling out to the black stone named Allah, and he was ultimately possessed. The Reed versus Recite debate is interesting in itself. Modern Muslims, in trying to solve the obvious problem, of why an all-knowing spirit would ask an illiterate man to read, say that the word, which is derived from the Hebrew kara, really means to recite. But that's worse. Why would Muhammad say he didn't know how to recite? 
especially when that became his only shtick. Well, at least apart from a serial rapist, consistent pedophile, and world-class terrorist. And why would the spirit of Islam ask a man to recite if he taught by the pen? Moreover, Muhammad was never given anything to read. Since we have discussed Allah's ignominious inaugural address, let's move on to the Prophet's less than heroic response. According to every account, he was scared spitless. Imagine that. You've invested the month of Ramadan hanging around in a cave for the express purpose of communing with the spirit world, and one comes and scares you to absolute death. Scares the bejesus out of you. In the earliest versions, he is said to have been so distraught, he wanted to commit suicide. The whole encounter is not only demonic, but the wannabe prophet also admitted that he had been demon-possessed. The revelation over, the newly minted messenger slid down the barren slopes or rose limestone, scurried over and across some sand dunes and religious uh, relics and entered the narrow valley town where he immediately coupled up to Mama. And make no mistake, his wife was the closest thing to a mother he had ever known. Panicked and tormented, the 40 to 58-year-old recluse cried out to a 60-year-old wife, cover me, crawling into a fetal position against her thigh. And we're about to end the broadcast portion of our program. Maybe we have just done so. We're still recording. Mm-hmm. Those who have called in can listen to the, uh, the program uh, as we uh, complete this. We have about 30 minutes that we can continue. And since 90%, 99% really of the listenership of this program is to the archives as a podcast, uh, this entire program will be available to them. So let's continue on here for um, a little bit longer. Knowing that he'd been molested by a jinn, which is the um, Farsi word uh, for the uh, Persians for devil or demon, a demonic spirit that's, uh, whose word is used throughout the Quran, and the dark spirit of night, he said, I do not know what has happened to me. I fear for myself. He poured out his mental confusion, and according to Ibn Ishaq, he said, I am afraid I am going out of my mind and being possessed by an evil spirit. Wow. The whole shebang. Since Muhammad admitted it, why do Muslims lash out and kill those who disagree their view and agree with Muhammad? Muhammad acknowledged this satanic influence in his life and therefore in the Quran. Do they disagree with their very own prophet? What Kajita did next set the forces in motion that ultimately condemned three billion souls, enslaved over a billion women, and plunged the world into chaos. She founded Islam. Muhammad was her first convert. In a twist of sadistic irony, the most liberated and prosperous woman in Islamic literature built the cage in which all Muslim women remain trapped. Calming her husband employee down, she said, Rejoice, cousin. 
Be of good cheer. You will be the prophet. Allah will not bring you to shame. Muhammad thinks he's just gone mano a mano in a wrestling match with a demon. And Kajita says, no, it's not so. It can't be. Be happy. I swear that Allah will never humiliate you. I hope that you may be the prophet of this community. Yes, Muhammad married his cousin. It was common between Muslims. Interbreeding is largely responsible for their demonstrable lack of intelligence and civility. What may sound pejorative, but this is a statement of fact. Wherever Islam corrupts the culture, there is a high prevalence of constantaneous marriages. And since it is easy to test in Gaza, where international health workers build and staff the hospitals, we know that 74.7% of non-sibling patients are associated with constantinous parents. Of those, 54% are first cousins, and 20.3% are second cousins. This is why the British tested their average IQ at 67.9%, or 67.9%. 70, by the way, is uh, a factor which scientists will call uh, mental retardation. Muslims also have a grossly abnormal occurrence of birth birth defects. It's under 2% in the West, versus 30% in Islamic nations. And the number one birth defect is mental disorders. At this time, Allah was just one of 360 stones gathering dust in the Kaaba. Together with Hubble, Manaf, Aluza, Alat, and the gang, they were the lichen and fungi on the Kaaba's rock pile. No Kaaba, no Hajj. No Hajj, no festival. No festival, no money. Kajita uh-huh. was a businesswoman in business to make money, selling her wares to pro- pilgrims who piled into Petra each year to visit their gods. She wasn't going to let anything foul that up. Not only did she tell her employee husband that he was wrong, that he was not a demon, She said that her god, the pagan lunar deity, the biggest and blackest stone in the Kaaba, would never allow him to be molested by an angry spirit. No way. Then, in anticipation of what was to come, she began her public relations campaign. She told her recluse husband that he was a swell guy, charitable, sociable, and trustworthy. He was the perfect candidate uh, to be the social chairman of a new cultic fraternity. (laughs) Bright and successful, Kajita was on a mission. She came up with a profitable profit plan. She had prospered in a man's world, but had no real power apart from her man. In fact, she was embarrassed, having been widowed twice. She had proposed marriage to Muhammad, a much younger employee. It was scandalous. To gain permission, she had to get the patriarch of her family drunk at the betrothal feast. Once he was successfully intoxicated, Kajita was able to coerce the consent required. 
The odd couple were married, but it was not all a bed of cactus flowers. Their sons died in infancy. It was a terrible stain in the culture that, like Islam, attributed misfortune to godly disdain. Kajita's husband was an absentee parent to the remaining daughters, and AWOL when it came to working in the family business. He was an illiterate recluse with a penchant for lone vigils in barren, lightless caves, which in a small town of perhaps a few thousand was gossip fodder. He was hardly the making this he was hardly making her look good. You just know the girls around town were talking behind her back. So to turn the tables on them, Kajita tells her husband that he's the prophet to his people, Allah's guy. As God's messenger, he's important. And now so is she. The lucrative custodianship of the Kaaba had even been more lucrative with the administration of the Hajj. The religious tax was all Muhammad's birthright, she implied. But fate had just dealt him a savage blow. Now, Kajita knew opportunity was knocking. She and he could have it all. Everything they covered it, prestige, money, power. All they had to do was to convince the neighbors that Muhammad was Allah's messenger. Since Allah was just a rock, no one would ever be able to dispute their claim. What was Allah going to do? Roll over? Crumble? Actually speak? No way! It can't be! Be happy! I swear by Allah that he will never humiliate you. Safe bet. <laughs> Kajit even tells her hubby that he's perfect for the job, truthful, generous with her money, and for a loner, he's caring and entertaining. Not have been enough. Prophet man just laid there, quivering. What little we have heard thus far makes no sense when attributed to a divine revelation. However, it makes perfect sense when we review the Quran in the context of a self-aggrandizement scheme, the self-justification of Tanuth. Therefore, Kajita was trying to proselytize Muhammad to recruit him into her profitable prophet plan. So what do you suppose she'll do next? Get someone religious to validate her claim? Well, perhaps. And so let's return to the Hadith and see how that transpired. Kajita took Muhammad to Waraka ben Nufal. He was the son of Kajita's uncle and the brother of a sorceress. He was the only man in town who had embraced Christianity in the pre-Islamic days of ignorance. He used to write the writing with Hebrew letters. He would write from the Gospels in Hebrew as much as Allah wished him to write. He was very old, and he had lost his eyesight. Now, in truth, Petra was rife with Christians and Jews. Once the Nabataeans and Romans moved out, those looking for a place to hide found it among the crumbling ruins of what had once been the most acclaimed religious town 
east of Karnak. Jews wrote in Hebrew, the language of the Torah, and Christians in Greek, the language of their New Testament. So someone is very confused. Further, most, almost everyone else, uh, everywhere, was and remains less ignorant than Muslims. As a result of these blunders, this endorsement wasn't worth the weight in Hebrew letters that it wasn't written upon. Kajita told Waraka, listen to the story of your nephew, my cousin. Waraka asked, nephew, what have you seen? Muhammad described what he had seen. Waraka said, this is the same one who keeps the secrets whom Allah had sent to Moses. I wish I were young and could live up to the time when your people would expel you. Muhammad asked, will they drive me out? Waruka replied, yes. Anyone who came with something similar to what you have brought was treated with hostility. A few days later, Waruka died, and the divine inspiration was paused for a long while. Nope. There are no depictions of giant angels striding the horizon in the Torah, standing between mountains. There are no near-death experiences in caves, battling demonic spirits. There's no insisting that illiterate men read. There's no declarations that conception is derived from a clot of blood. There is no Professor Penn. There was no secret keeper. And no one was sent to Moses, as he was the mm-hmm. one who was sent to Pharaoh. And since we took the time to review the nature of the one who was foretold by Moshe, well, we did if I had shared a previous chapter with you, mm-hmm. we know that he spoke of Dode, David, the Messiah and Son of God, our Savior, and not a demon-possessed psychopath in Arabia. Pause a moment. One of the interesting things about that prophecy that uh, Muslims and Christians both claim is their own, where uh, Moses says that uh, there will be a prophet uh, 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 like me from your people. So your people means he would not be a a Loewe, but that he would be a Yisraelite um, and that he would have to be a prophet. Um, And that whole depiction goes down and describes precisely who this individual is going to be. There's only one individual in all of human history that measures up. That's Dode. And it's clearly him. Uh, and it cannot be Muhammad uh, by any stretch of the imagination, nor can it be the pretend uh, Jesus. But it's the placement of that that is so interesting. Because guess what comes right after it? Mm-hmm. The test of false prophets. It's in the body, you maintain. Brilliant, brilliant. It's just so perfect to rebuke Islam. Oh, uh, Yahweh is very, very smart. No joke. Yeah. So, as we continue this, we know who was foretold by Moshe. We know that he spoke of Dode, the Messiah Mm -hmm. and King, our Savior. 
he did not speak of a demon-possessed psychopath in Arabia. Moshe's people did not expel him. Instead, he liberated them from Egypt. But the uh, inverting of the Torah for this account was not by accident. Twelve years later, after the satanic verses and the night's journey, Muhammad's ken would drive him out of Petra in disgrace. And since that was embarrassing, those who were writing these hadith centuries later and after the fact attempted to make the shameful hirja migration look like a triumphant yatza exodus. <laughs> but of course, Muslims <coughs> would have to remain ignorant and irrational to believe any of this. Unable to keep their story straight, <coughs> even with 300 years available to synchronize them, <coughs> even Ishak tells us that Kajita this time went alone to Waraka. When she related to him what Muhammad told her, he had seen and heard, Walker cried, Holy, holy, if you have spoken the truth, Kajita, and what are the chances of that? There has come to him the Namos, the spirit who appeared long ago to Moses. Tell Muhammad to be of good cheer, for he is to be the prophet of his people. So Kajita returned to her husband and told him, what Waraka had said, and as a result, his fears were somewhat calmed. Tabati's account is presented in Muhammad's voice, and he says, when she took me to Waraka and said, listen to your brother's son, he questioned me, and I told him what had happened, and he said, this is the Namus, which was sent down to Mose, son of Abraham. I am so glad that I've come back to this after having written all these other books, because there is no way that your average dum-dum is going to figure out what this Namus is. Uh, but I know what it is. Do you guys know what it is? No. Ever heard that word before? No. no it's no, conjugated. No. It's a Greek word. It's conjugated nomos, nomu, uh, and uh, nomu in Greek. It is Paul's favorite. Yep. These oh boys gosh. have all yeah. been hit with the stupid stick one too many times. Namus <laughs> is a corruption of a transliteration of the Greek word uh, conjugated nomos, nomo, nomu. When it is best translated as assigning and distributing an inheritance to nourish heirs, uh, it was used by Paul the last man to be demon-possessed by Satan in this way, throughout the letters he wrote to denounce the Torah. He used nomos to denounce the Torah. So while the spirit yeah. of nomos was promoted by Paul to annul the Torah, it is the antithesis of what was afforded Moshe. Oh, my oh, God. Did they get played yeah. for fools? Wow. The dialogue repeats itself with what is found in Bukhari until this last line spoken by Muhammad. The first parts of the Quran to be revealed after me were uh, Ikra, were by the pen and what, it, uh, and what they write. You were not a madman. 
yours will be a reward on failing, and you are a great of great nature, and you shall see and they shall see. In this particular case, uh, Muhammad's uh, quotation is an incomplete variant of the uh, 68th surah. The 68th surah, I will tell you, is stunning in what it actually says. Nonetheless, uh, the Islamic scholars who, like myself, have attempted to reorder the Quran chronologically have concluded that the 68th surah was the the 40th, I should say, not the 14th. It was the 40th surah allegedly received, which means, oh, by the way, it could not have been the second. Montgomery Watt, the translator of this volume of Tabati's Takrif, uh, agrees, saying the 68th surah was unlikely to be early, since it implies that Muhammad had been charged with being a madman possessed by jinn, demons. This error by Muhammad at the outset of his Quranic career is horrendous. It means that even he couldn't remember when his revelations were given to him. In a moment, I'll share both the remainder of the 96th surah, because I just read the first six lines of it, and the salient portions of the 68th. And with that evidence, you can decide who's lying. But blind or not, Waraka, a mere 72 hours from his death, had become a senile and confused old man. Nevertheless, he served Kajita's purpose. She used him to convince her clients and Ken that Allah had a messenger. Her man was the next Moses, a prophet to her people. So how does a new religion spring to life on such shaky ground? If the facts are so obviously fallacious, how could the revelation be truthful? Now what I'm going to say next. Yeah, it will appear scandalous at first blush, but I believe Muhammad murdered Waraka. The Hanif Mm -hmm. was the most revered holy man in Petra. After Kachita had used him, he became a liability, someone who could and would profess that Muhammad's claims were untrue, the more he came to know. When you have finished goddamn religion and discover how many men Muhammad assassinated, for this Mm -hmm. very same reason, I believe that you'll share my view. Next we learn that even Kajita was troubled by Muhammad's dark adventure into the spirit world. This is hilarious. Tabati has it in the sixth volume in Ishaq on page 107. Cousin, she's speaking to Muhammad, her husband. Cousin, can you tell me when this visitor comes to you? Muhammad replied, yes. She said, tell me then when he comes. Gabriel came to him as before, and Muhammad said, here's Gabriel who has just come to me. She said, oh, yes. Come, cousin, and sit by my left thigh. He came and she said, can you see him? Yes. Move around and sit by my right thigh. He did so and she said, can you see him? Yes. She said, sit in my lap. He did so and she said, can you see him? 
He replied, yes. She was grieved and she flung off her veil and she disclosed her body while the apostle was sitting in her lap. <laughs> Parallel hadith from the same collector suggests Kajita put the messenger inside of her shift next to her body. The third variation proclaims, I heard that she made the apostle come inside of her shift. (laughs) (laughs) And with, then she said, can you see him? No. (laughs) He's under her shift at this point, (laughs) folks. That's, and at that she said, Rejoice, cousin. By Allah, this spirit is an angel and not Satan. Uh, uh, that was creepy. And well, why not bring in a crystal ball, a Ouija board, some tarot cards, and invite the neighbors over for a peep show, and maybe a game of, of no show and tell? Albeit, I'm not sure why I understand that, you know, clearly an old lady exposing herself uh, to a lap-dancing prophet (laughs) proves other than he was excited. And we are left wondering if Gabriel enjoyed the show. The, The actual, by the way, implication of this is that If the mystery spirit was an angel, not the devil, he would be too modest to look upon an old woman's body. But angels don't lust, and pre-Islamic women didn't wear veils. Yet, in fairness, Kachita was over 60 years old and had dwelt in the desert. A peak under her shift might have frightened the devil away. (laughs) Kachita wasn't the only one who couldn't see Muhammad's shy spirit. The prophet said, Aisha, this is Gabriel. He sends his greetings and salutations to you. Aisha replied, salutations and greetings to him. Then addressing the prophet, she said, you see what I don't see. (laughs) Oh, and he would have been hard to miss because the prophet informed us that he had seen Gabriel and he had 600 wings. Everything is bigger in Islam, including wannabe gods. (laughs) (laughs) Allahu Akbar. (laughs) The, The identity of Muhammad's dark spirit aside, there was another nagging problem, radio silence. There were no visions, dreams, demonic encounters, or wrestling matches. Nothing for nearly three years. The menacing cave critter was nowhere to be found. Every day, Muhammad went to visit his spirit friend at the Kaaba, but the Almighty Allah couldn't muster a single howdy or read or whatever rocks are inclined to say when their pen pals stopped by for a visit. (laughs) It, it, It was embarrassing. He was a messenger without a message. Anguished Muhammad contemplated suicide a second time. So what do you think happened next? Yep, right you are. There was prophet vision. (laughs) This is from Muslim and Bukhari. Well, 
Talking about the period of pause and revelation, the prophet said, while I was walking, all of a sudden I heard a voice. I looked and saw the angel who had visited me at the cave sitting on a chair in the sky. Oh, that would be Allah. I got scared of him, and I ran home and said, wrap me up, wrap me in blankets, Kajita. Then Allah revealed the verses of the Quran to me. Oh, Muhammad, the shrouded one, wrapped in garments, arise and warn the people against the Lord's punishment and abandon the idols. This candidate for Revelation number two is a divergent recital of Quran 74, uh, verse 1. After this revelation, after this, revelation started coming strongly, frequently, and regularly. Oh, my. Well, the second revelation is found in the 93rd surah, not the 74th, the aforementioned 68th, or even in the remainder of the 96th. We know this because the 93rd surah speaks specifically of the multi-year hiatus and divine inspiration. But how are we supposed to believe anything that Islam's prophet says when he can't keep his own story straight? Further, there are two enwrapped surahs, not one, and neither is consistent with Muhammad's recollection. Besides, if Gabriel was sitting, uh, was sitting on the floating chair, why didn't Muhammad, or why would Muhammad run home? We're told that he was suicidal because Gabriel was nowhere to be found. He shows up and his messenger flees. And why do we have to leave Petra and endure 90 surahs before we're introduced again to the source of these recitals? The Quran's legitimacy is entirely dependent on this particular source. And it gets worse. We're asked to believe that Allah, who has been too busy being the top dog of the Kaaba, to deliver a message to his messenger, finally tracks the panic prophet down. He tells a grown man hiding under the covers that he wants him to go out and warn his people. <laughs> sure, that's credible. And why is Allah so angry? Why does he need to punish all of the little blood clots? He and his non-prophet are just getting warmed up. We haven't even been introduced. If this is supposed to be God speaking, why doesn't Muhammad know his name? Remember, all of the early surahs were, title was the Rob. These were rabbis. And, and when the spirit finally gets around to introducing himself, we learn that his real name is Arachman. Well, maybe we've got the story wrong. Let's check out another hadith. This will probably be the end of our program this evening. Uh, Muslim and Tabati. I asked Abu uh, Salama what was revealed from the uh, Quran first. He said, the shrouded one enveloped in the cloak. But I knew better and said, wasn't it recite? Jabir said, I am telling you what the messenger told me. He said, I stayed in the cave for a month and when my stay was completed, I came down and went into the valley. Somebody called me, and I looked, and I didn't see anybody. And I was again called out, but saw nothing. I raised my head 
and there was the throne in the atmosphere he was sitting. I began to tremble because I was afraid of him. These were Uthman's words, but the correct version is, I was terror-stricken by him. Then I came to Kajita, and they threw water on me, and Allah sent down this. You who are shrouded, arise and deliver a warning. Your God, your, excuse me, your Lord, magnify, and your flows cleanse. Well, he had the water handy, so why not? Sounds like a perfect time to do the, the laundry. So at this point, all we know for certain is that Muhammad was a pathological liar. He had a very poor memory. He was depressed and suicidal, and that he claimed to be demon-possessed. And with that, we'll call it hey, an evening. We'll pick up this program next week. I hope you all don't mind that we, we left Islamic creation and went to the initiation of the Quran because, well, this was just too good to pass up. We do not have to be worried about mocking the Quran and trying to convince Muslims that they should not kill Jews for Allah because this is a farce. And it's obvious. Yeah. Well, happy Shabbat. Uh, fortunately, the God of Islam uh, isn't a God at all. And Muslims can be stymied in their desire to kill Jews. And that is the purpose of this book and these programs. May Yahweh bless Yisrael. And may Yahudim return to their God. Happy Shabbat. Good night. Good night. Good night. Mm-hmm.